0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin, talk about stuff. Bandwidth
1: brought to you by Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Fairies in Carcosa, The Mothman Festival, Character Complexity in Fiction, and Cotton Mather. Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about?
0: Hmm, I mean the one from Atlas Games uh, Plane something?
1: It's Plane Gia, Robin. The star shaman's song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy roleplaying right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dino-rific? I do dare say dino There's the Plain Gia Core Book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called the Songs of the Stone Age. So, as is our want
0: here in the podcast, occasionally, in addition to our ambling, we have a preamble. And this time around, Ken, our preamble hut concerns a project that you've been shepherding that has taken some old material and put it together in a new and exciting and convenient and
1: horrific package that's correct and um, my shepherding consisted of saying to a beloved game designer but also gifted audio designer will hindmarch it would be nice if we could get all of the horror cinema essentials the horror 101s those 17 segments Together in a podcast or together in an audiobook, and uh, Will said, "Yeah, I'll bet it would." And after a bare minimum of me interfering and in making things worse, Will and Rob got together and put the files together. And so, as a result, just in time for Spooktober of 2022, you can travel back to late 2020 and mid 2021 with Ken and Robin talking the horror cinema essentials. It's on Bandcamp. You can download that audio book now. It's five and a half hours long. So long car trips uh, into the spooky woods, possibly to be murdered. Now you've got the soundtrack. Right. So go to Kenandrobin.bandcamp.com and Robin dot com and you will see our single so far question mark release on that page and you can download it into whatever place you like to download things or just keep it in your uh, little thing and, and stream it like the kids do nowadays. Right.
0: We often get people saying the thing about your gaming podcast is there's a bunch of stuff in it that my non gaming friends would also be interested in. <laughs> have you considered dropping the gaming? And uh, <laughs> no, of course they don't have to say that. They say, have you considered anthologizing some of those segments? And so this is going to be an interesting experiment to see how many people who have heard it already want to rehear it again in a convenient form and uh, how many other people presumably all uh, turned onto it by our beloved uh, listeners and backers would enjoy it without all the gaming stuff. So there's all sorts of different series that we've had over the years that could also be put together in this way, assuming people want it enough to put everybody to the trouble of doing
1: it. Yes. We we have to have a, a level of sales that makes it worth Will Hindmarch's time. Making it worth our time is easier because we've already done it and we love you, but sadly it, it takes a Hindmarch perhaps to turn it from, that would be a good idea, into canonrobin.bandcamp.com, available now.
0: And on that URL, it's time to uh, exit the preamble hut and enter the regular huts.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the sploosh of the sugar cube going into the absinthe, Welcome us once more into a gaming hut that's a lot bigger on one side than it used to be and and Peter Frampton is uh well he's he's very pale and he's waving his arms around and he's there's got sort leaves
0: of in his hair and possibly antlers
1: trails coming out of it uh yeah, we are in a absintheated edition of the gaming hut because we are once more walking into the king in yellow, and when we walk where we shouldn't. We know we are being led astray by fairies, Robin, and fairies, obviously, the classic horror element, classic fantasy element, classic element of French folklore, it means that the King in Yellow must be nestled, waiting for them to occur. So tell us all about that. And of course,
0: there's parallels between fairy myth and the very, very slender bit of information that we get about the characters in the play, The King in Yellow, and then the things that I and other people have elaborated on top of Robert W. Chambers' uh, original stories. For example, they live in another realm that you can go to. They are the royals. The king is indistinguishable between a god and a supernatural being and an alien. Uh, if you uh, disobey the rules, you get cruelly punished. And so it makes absolute sense to uh, draw the world of fairy into the world of Carcosa. And in fact, this is not something I'm just proposing should happen. It's in the core book, in the mm-hmm. Paris book. There's a bunch of creatures, fae creatures from Breton folklore specifically, that show up as Creatures, but they've been all twisted to Carcosa. So there's a Corrigan, there's an Anku, there's the Nain, who's sort of a big, burly, beat you up sort of fairy. Who, of course, is going to be wearing 1890s uh, formal wear. Uh, and if you want to just hear about uh, Breton folklore, which is a uh, wonderful and weird and uh, twisted and a different version of fa- a less tamed version of the fairy myth than you think about from uh, England which, uh, you know, Victorianed it up a bit, you can dial all the way back to episode 256 where we talk about that specifically. But I thought this time around, we would look at ways to actually build them into your scenario and have them, you know, how how do you interact with them? What sort of mysteries do they create? So the idea uh, with all supernatural beings in the Yellow King that are not from Carcosa is that they're still essentially created or enabled by Carcosa. So either they are dormant for long periods when Carcosa is not intruding into the world, or, and you get to choose this as GM, the all of the myths and legends and fears that humans have are then activated and incarnated by the existence of uh, and energy. So Ken, if you were to start thinking about a mystery that would bring the Fey uh, into Paris in 1895, uh, what seed... Are we going, seed, fairy, get it, seeds, nature, Ah. what are we going to plant to uh, grow into a mystery?
1: Well, I would take the uh, sort of the two big concerns of the second half of the King in Yellow, which are leaving Paris to go paint, right? So you go out into either a little artist colony like Giverny or even out to Brittany to paint. That's a thing that artist characters do. That's what chambers definitely did.
0: You gotta go look at that nature in order to paint it. You
1: right? gotta go look at that nature and and get some some good light, some right. dusk and some dawn light, which is of course good fairy times and of course, the I've fallen in love with someone unsuitable story, which is again virtually all of the second half of the book and who's more unsuitable to fall in love with Robin than a fairy so I feel like your your characters or one of your characters close friends but i think it's more fun if all of your characters are like look uh we've got train tickets let's go out to some placid uh uh, country uh, ideal and we'll fish and we'll chase butterflies and we'll paint and uh we'll maybe fool around and then we'll come back to paris uh sunburned and happy and with paintings and while they're out there one of the characters or one of the beloved NPCs meets a fairy, paints them falls in love and the fairy follows them back to Paris because now the fairy has a hook in them and it's, Oh, that's odd. That country girl. I saw her again in Paris, but she looked like a Grisette this time. And Oh, and now she looks like she's, I saw her in a painting at the Bon Marche. Oh, that's, and she's everywhere. She's showing up in reflections and mirrors and she's, sort of like closing in on you to draw you in and of course the if nothing is done uh the two of them will be discovered painted into a self-portrait that's hung in the salon and the artist will have vanished off into fairyland which that painting becomes a little window of that is the sort of story arc that i would see happening absent action by our heroic player characters
0: right and so the the two choices there are to either have this happen to a a GMC, a Game Master character, or to have it happen to one of the player characters. And in either case, the instigating incident that starts to turn it from, you know, the stuff we did last summer into an actual scenario, a problem that needs to be solved, is when that glorious romantic relationship starts to turn twisted and dark. Perhaps as autumn comes, Mm -hmm. we're going to go with the natural cycles of things. And so how quickly you want to start that as part of the story and get to the problem is i think an interesting structural uh, question that we've set up here so there's two ways to do that one is the usual your fellow art student is beginning to be distracted and strange and keeps talking about his new french girlfriend and because he's an american art student like right. you are you know there's a painting of her but you never see her and he's you know beginning to lose weight and become gaunt and listless and there's leaves in his hair, herald. What's going on? And so it, that could be the classic friend in peril, find out why they're in peril. The other one, I guess, would be that you say to the players, uh, okay, so you go on this it'll, and then you set that up. You could even enjoy a fun little misdirect where they get to the artist colony and there's a weird caretaker who warns them about the creature in the lake. Mm. Uh, possibly there even is a creature in the lake wearing a strange mask. Yeah, <laughs> But that, that creature is dispatched fairly quickly. And the, you know, the flirtation with the fairy that turns out to be the main point of the evening is then sort of slipped in. So in that case, of course, you need to find a player who wants to play a romantic relationship, which is a subset, hopefully (laughs) not 0% of your group, but it's definitely a subset of your group. Say who volunteers to describe that and how that sets up and gets going so that you get the person agreeing that this huge development and the life of their characters actually happen to them.
1: Yeah, and that I think is the fun way to do it. I, I feel like, as you say, the your fellow art student has weird goings on is, you know, the Yellow King has not been out long enough for it to quite be your uncle leaves you a haunted house who you've never met, opener for Call of Cthulhu, but it is by the time you've run Paris for a bit it's going to be a fairly standard fallback and anything to prevent standardness is good I feel like in a Yellow King game. So yeah
0: even if you haven't done it yet you're going to need to do it later so right. don't don't do it now.
1: Right. And and I would uh really I would really urge people to play out the summer idyll either as its own session where you are doing a misdirect or even a real direct where there is in fact a a little charming group of community players doing a very old uh, commedia dell'arte form that oh no we just heard it and thought it up ourselves and it's sort of kind of the play but it's not really the play and of course they heard it from watching the fairies act out the the play you know uh, you know special fairy times and so you have to bust up this rural uh, theater troupe or fight the lake monster or do something else, x files Z while you're on this painting job. And then in between, you slip in the ideal. And then the sequel, maybe two or three sessions later, is, hey, that girlfriend you saw in in uh, uh, Epernay and you painted her, uh, is that her on the bus, on the omnibus right now? That's wild because she's not dressed like a French country girl anymore. And then you can be the, oh, my God, does she track me down? I've got other stuff i got to do. This is awkward. Becomes... Oh, also, I have leaves in my hair and I'm not eating and maybe I'm going to vanish into a painted fairyland forever problem.
0: Right. And so the escalation of that is that uh, that one player character is starting to get uh, lots of composer tests thrown at them. They got to avoid the shock cards that start to indicate uh, a transformation because, uh, you know, normally regular people project their selves and their, uh, ideas of what the perfect, uh, lover is onto a romantic partner. Well, when, uh, when the Fae do it, mm-hmm. it has magical effect. It starts to change you. You start to become more elfin. And I, I guess a player who really goes for it will be like, yeah, I'm just going to play this out and I'm going to play myself as wanting to go. And it's up to the rest of the players to stop me. Mm-hmm. But here we have a, another interesting sort of structural issue in a scenario, which is how do you escalate that? into a thing with a series of steps and with a mystery where there's a crisis that you have to resolve because it's just you know, your friend is getting weird and either he breaks from her or he doesn't. That's not a scenario. That's not a mystery. So presumably there has to be some other overtly villainous fake character, perhaps a name even who maybe uh, ha- had eyes for your inhuman girlfriend and uh instead of wanting you to transform into a fairy, wants to kill you or, and perhaps wants to lure you into uh, some kind of trap in order to do that. It might set up a, a mystery or, you know, just maybe murder somebody and pin it on you. That's something that happens a lot in other fiction, but doesn't, isn't a, a yellow King trope.
1: What I feel like would be fun and chambers e is that you have to get someone who is their actual true love to show up at the moment that they're going to be, you know, slurped into Carcosa fairyland and embrace them. And the true power of human love will keep them with us long enough for it to be next year's problem. So maybe it's Halloween, maybe it's, you know, uh, the day before Christmas or St. Nicholas day or some, you look up some cool Breton folk day where fairies are wandering around. And that's the day that the lover is going to schloop, you into the uh Fairland, and of course you can be seeing other paintings at the salon with this girl in it with a different painter who vanished a hundred years ago or something, and you're oh my dear that's that's uh that's not a good look, and you know she's just keeps drawing these artists in because that's her type, and so the solution is not to fight a name, although it'd be you know if you need to have a action scenario, she can have a name who's her brother, and he just wants to make sure that. Her creep friends don't mess it up. And so he's not trying to kill the artist. He's like, oh, you guys are the type who who screw things up. We had this same problem in 1784 uh, with Poussin. And then he just shows up and he, you know, bangs on you. 1684. Don't at me, people. I'm doing this. And he just shows up and he he beats up the friends. But he never beats up the lover because that's not what a good brother does.
0: And and once you've introduced the element of, oh, she does this. This is Mm -hmm. her thing she turns all sorts of, you know, every hundred years, she turns an artist inhuman. Mm-hmm. We would then have to explain the whole carcosan energy not being around thing, but I you could, you know, if there's a spike of carcosan energy every hundred years or something like
1: that. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons she preys on artists is because they keep that carcosan lambent fire alive with their potential to always create art that reveals Carcosa. Right.
0: So there were in, incipient flaps in the past. Right. That, that's yep. enough exposition to justify that. And so now she's gone from you know, a, a lover who just wants to take you into your world and have you, you know, live at her mom's place into someone who's actively predatory, who's, uh, you know, she's a serial killer. And once every hundred years, that's just well, she's regular- a serial
1: monogamist killer. <laughs>
0: right. And so then you've got the point of, you know, the wedding is a threat. And I think the interesting way to go about that is that the player buys into when he's in the presence of his uh, Elfin in a he's all in. Mm. But when he's not in her presence, he's like, Oh no,
1: (laughs) this is not good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that has a parallel to uh, some people's real relationships, which you can uh, play with there. And so uh, you're all trying to do whatever you can to escape showing up at the wedding at the end of this uh, comedy. That's not a comedy. Uh, But of course it's fairyland. It can move around. The wedding can pursue you. So, you know, and, and then when it does, you've done the investigation, you've learned the secrets of the past, you've learned of the one artist who managed to escape, and you've gone to the trouble and danger of finding the thing, the formula that you need to uh, immunize your friend uh, from the threat of marriage. And, you know, maybe that leads to, she'll eat an artist's soul, but she won't, you know, try to marry someone who's already married. So maybe the secret is to get to the church on time with some uh, willing friend who's going to have a Marriage of convenience to save you from the elf.
1: Or or maybe if your character had a girlfriend in a previous episode, it turns out, nope, she's maybe not my true love, but she's my truly will save me from Carcosa love. And you are, yeah, now you're married. Now you've got a NPC, a D NPC as we used to say, or now a NPC that is going to also need protecting and helping, despite the fact that you've got a play to stop, etc. Um, another wrinkle that you can throw into it, you can borrow... Uh, from the great Elizabeth Hand's great novel, Mortal Love, which is about a, a fairy who becomes the muse to several artists. The fairy can be your muse and your art actually gets much better when you're around her because that's how fairy muses work. And so on the one hand, yes, she's bad for me. This is a toxic relationship. I don't want to be drawn into Carcosa to dwell with her mom forever. But on the other hand, now I can draw hands and that would be nice. And so you have the, you know, the... Um, uh, they're a little
0: elfy, but still they're better hands than you were drawing before. Yeah, but
1: still they're better hands than you had. Or the, you know, the quality of your painting gets good and Bougereau comes around and says, finally, finally, you've drawn something alive. And you're like, well, okay, thank you, Bougereau. And that's another uh, draw is, well, no, obviously I'm going to dump her on Halloween or or St. Andrew's Day or whatever. But, um, you know, right now, I want to get this painting into the competition and win the priest de Rome. So could we not mess with my girlfriend until like after the competition is over and give the character even more reasons to tergiversate and kind of be a problem child in the way that people you're trying to talk down from a bad relationship can often be. And again, that will add, I think, some meat and some fun to the role play in a way that Carcosin Monster X, we must hit it with Y, kind of play. You know, again, nothing wrong with that, but that's going to be in a lot of other episodes, so with this one...
0: Successfully getting someone to recognize a bad relationship (laughs) is a power fantasy if there ever was one. (laughs) Right, exactly. by turning this into a romantic storyline, of course, we've done something very uh, like Robert W. Chambers who, unlike most other horror writers, uh, has strong elements of romance in several of his stories. And on that note, I think it's time for uh, us to uh, exit before the fairies come and take over the whole podcast. And uh, whatever's waiting for us on the other side can't possibly be eerie and troublesome. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground
1: ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Kulp and Emily Dresner, And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery, for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory,
0: justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink.
1: That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press.
0: It's time once more to issue a travel advisory. This, of course, is where one of us has been somewhere and comes back to tell about it. And Ken, you're the one going places and doing things at the moment. And you've gone a to a very courtesy place, the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And while I was doing my cursory research on this and going to look up what episode our our main segment on the Mothman was in, I realized... We haven't done a Mothman segment. and Which I could, I have a distinct memory, even, you know, of having done so. So it must have been that season, Ken, where you turned evil, and it all turned out in the end, it was Dr. Manhattan with the Cosmic Cube who'd done mm-hmm. it. And we had to, like, you had to get in the time machine and erase a bunch of episodes. It must have been one of those, because we've talked about John Keel, who's the, the sort of main popularizer uh, of the Mothman. And uh, we did that in episode 170. But the mothman himself before we get to all the touristy stuff a <laughs> uh, quick recap
1: yeah very quick because we probably do want to do a mothman segment because it's one of the great i personally feel it's one of the greatest cryptid stories cryptid encounters he's my favorite cryptid out for sure. there he well many many people love him there is a rumor that the kids think of mothman as hot now <laughs> I don't <laughs> the know. Kids that that ship is anybody.
0: True. There's Loch Ness monster shippers. But,
1: well, the, there are some people you ship faster than other people. I don't feel like there's a lot of you know Mitch McConnell shipping out there. I feel like there's more Mothman shipping. Yes. But anyhow, the Mothman appeared to uh three young people driving around drag racing, basically on a remote road out by what is called the TNT area in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. This is on November fifteenth, nineteen sixty-six. Uh, they're out tooling around, and they see a strange winged figure with burning red eyes that is drawn sort of like just a, a lump with wings. It's not, you know, a, an actual humanoid, and the, the the sort of body part of it, it doesn't necessarily bifurcate, but... It does chase their car as they're driving back from the TNT area. And as the their... original
0: sighting is more moth than man.
1: Yeah, right. But one of the witnesses did describe, and this was quoted to us by the tour guide, a muscular human leg dropped over the side of the, um, a muscular masculine leg, excuse me, dropped over the side of the 1957 Chevy Bel Air that they were fleeing and that the wingspan of the mothman extended over both sides of the of the car I find now it, it was
0: that a, a flying creature doesn't skip leg day
1: right well you know that's that's because you've, you you've got to look hot for reddit or tumblr or tiktok or whichever one anyway he was originally described as birdman there was a big flap uh, a couple of other sightings the town sort of panicked shut down kindergartens because they didn't know if it was just a big scary uh predator animal out there you know kids weren't allowed to play outside there was all manner of uh stuff going on and the general uh, atmosphere of psychic heebie-jeebies mounted in the town, there were not a ton of other sightings, but investigator John Keel shows up. He has his experiencer event with a alien or ultra-terrestrial figure named Indrid Cold. There is a uh, an encounter with this alien. There's men in black sightings all over town. And the psychic worry of uh, the little town breaks when the Silver Bridge falls into the river and on like December 15th, 1967. So it's packed with cars full of Christmas presents and Christmas shoppers coming back from Gallipolis, Ohio bridge across the Ohio collapses. It falls in. And that sort of catastrophe ends the Mothman. Uh, First of all, it's no fun to talk about Mothman. Now you've got a real problem. And second of all, you know, I think John Keel probably says that's good enough and doesn't come around anymore. But anyway, the, the psychic break of the of the disaster ends the Mothman sighting. Right. So, or
0: the psychic break of John Keel, the experiencer leaving. Leaving.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of possibilities. But the, the sort of, you know, biblical nature of this horrible Harbinger showing up and then this disaster happening with a lot of other cool stuff in it is all captured in Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies which is released in 1975 and which I maintain is the single scariest horror novel released in that year. And yes, even scarier than Salem's Lot. And that sort of plants a lot of seeds into the cryptid and UFO communities. It is made into a movie that I believe we have mentioned in our Horror Cinema Essentials with Richard Gere in 2002. And uh, now, as I mentioned, uh, The Mothman is More humanoid and uh, is in the process of being domesticated, just like all genuine fairy lore is, you know, he's positively
0: festive because towns need to find out what's the most interesting thing about us that we can wrap a fair or tourist event around. In this case, it's the Mothman Festival. Yep. So what what is it? Other than, of course, the aura of the Mothman himself that lured you to this festival.
1: I mean, it it is the aura of the Mothman itself. I do enjoy these little small town festivals they are just fun in and of themselves. I've been to the Superman Days at Metropolis, Illinois, which is great fun and is very much the county fair, but Superman. I assumed that would be this the, the the county fair but mothman so the mothman whackamole and so forth Exactly beloved friend of the show Darcy Ross and I uh went out in search of uh Mothman and Fun and we found a much bigger event than I thought it was going to be It's got cosplay uh people walking around in their moth antennas it's got <laughs> talks it's got uh movies on the Mothman that are debuted at the uh, the theater in town, which looks right. like it's... So these
0: people should know that next time, you should be part of the talk. You should be on a panel.
1: I should be. And it's... um. Uh, I think the theater is closed all the rest of the year, except during Mothman days. None of which we could get to, because it was all super crowded. Uh, we went on the Saturday. The town of Point Pleasant is about 5,000. It's a little under 5,000. The normal tourist load at Mothman Days is now over 12,000. According to the TV station, the Mothman Festival, after two years off, may have cracked 20,000. There was pent-up Moth energy. Pent-up Moth energy. But the trouble is, they all wanted to come on Saturday. So it was jammed. The line to get to the Mothman statue, which is right there in town, around the block. The line to get into the Mothman Museum, double around the block. Just impossible to deal with. Just huge crowds. The cell network, of course, goes down completely. So you've got to bring cash for everything. Again, we had a great time, but much of our Saturday was spent sort of orienting ourselves to the the town and to the place. Darcy had very cleverly booked us a tour on an air-conditioned bus, which was very helpful. And that drove out to the old TNT area where they used to make dynamite for the government during World War II. And they had all these storage bunkers that, uh, they filled up with dynamite and then sent them off to, to fight, uh, Hitler. And the, uh, storage bunkers are still there, many of them abandoned, uh, some of them still in use. And as our tour guide, and one of the wonderful things about this tour, by the way, in addition to the air conditioning, was that the tour guide or guides, there was two of them. They were both locals. One of them was sort of the conspiracy guy and his theory was, that the UFO flap that had preceded Mothman had opened a wormhole and Mothman came from an alien dimension and that the men in black hunted him down and that the bridge was to cover up the hunt for Mothman, which was a pretty dark theory to you know, spring on you in a nice sunny bus. But the other lady was someone who literally had grown up in town. She was a kid during the Mothman flap and she knew all the people that all the stories were about. She knew their families. She'd met them. She was not allowed to play with the kids of the Experiencer of Indrid Cold, the Durenbergers. Uh it's like, nope, you can't play with the Durenbergers. Later, she finds out, oh, it's because he thinks he's seen a Martian and that was a weird thing. And so she had a, a very, very informative, cool take on the whole thing. Her belief was there was a real event. People really saw things and her argument was no one has changed their story in 50 years. You'd change your story if it was not True thing, I don't know that that's the case, but it was you know an argument, and I didn't learn I don't think a single new fact about the Mothman on this tour. But But you got the human side of this. I got the human side of it, and I got to see the actual TNT area. I got to see the actual the creepy straight gravel road where the Mothman first appeared. That was moderately numinous. The building that he jumped onto the top of has been knocked down now, but we saw where it was. So you sort of get. The, the, the local terroir, if you will, of, uh, Mothman country, just by having gone out, seen those hills, done the tour, et cetera. Darcy and I stayed in an Airbnb, like an hour away in, I think it's, um, Hutchinson, West Virginia, or something like that. Uh, so we were not bang in the middle of town because you couldn't get bang in the middle of town because, as I mentioned, 20,000 people. So my advice is the closer you want to be to the Mothman, the earlier you should get your, uh, lodging, and there's like one hotel in town and I think a best Western on the edge and that's it. And then the rest is, you know, uh, hotels in other, uh, little towns around. The, there's also a camping option. You can camp at the, at the campground. You have to get your camping spot pretty early. But on Sunday, when we came back and the crowds were down to what we thought the crowds would be in the, you know, single digit thousands, the lines were more deal withable, and we stood in line to get in the Mothman Museum with a couple of uh, local kids from Kentucky who'd come up and camped at the site. And uh, they were full of well, first of all, good humor and cheer. Second of all, it's lovely to see someone who's who makes Darcy feel as old as Darcy <laughs> makes me feel all the time.
0: Well, that that is the circle of life, right there. Right.
1: We were discussing Batman, and uh, the the one kid was I, I said we were talked we talked about the new Matt Reeves Batman. And I said, so what did you think of the Nolan Batman? And he just looks at me like I'm talking nonsense. And I said, Christian Bale, Batman, there were three of them. They made a billion dollars each. And he says, oh, did that come in a box set? (laughs) Like, that's the thing I would know about the Nolan Batman. This is why they,
0: when we say another remake, there's always someone who's like, this is brand new. It's brand new to me. Anyway, we're we're, we're digressing here. We are
1: digressing, but it was a delightful thing. So
0: are there like moth burgers and moth curly fries and stuff?
1: There is definitely Mothman uh, themed uh, coffee drinks at the coffee place. There's moth burgers in the diners. Again, those places were all just jam packed even on the on the uh, on the Sunday. So we didn't uh, enjoy the, you know, Mothman iced coffee. It's green because all alien things are green. The Mothman was not green. But we did get into the moth Museum. better than museum. being
0: full of dust, right? If, if something was truly moth-themed, there'd be nasty dust in it. You don't want that.
1: You don't want it. Although, I guess nasty dust in coffee is just Splendia. coffee grounds, right? Yeah, or whatever. It could be. So, uh, we did get into the museum, which is terrific. It's a very complete archive of all the sightings and all the mentions. Lots of stuff from the movie. Props and costumes and things from the movie. John Keel's actual typewriter. Stuff like that. Posters and whatnot. Again, it's also got a a lovely gift shop where I I got some books. And one of the things that the main fair had was two long tents where area uh, paranormalists and also tents where other artists and craftspeople showed off their Mothman related goods. So there were Mothman uh, shirts and Mothman sparklies and Mothman jewelry and Mothman art and Mothman hats and all kind of other Mothman and other cryptid type stuff. Uh, Darcy set as a personal goal the discovery of a Mothman crop top and uh, succeeded in that. I uh, set as a personal goal with a Mothman Hawaiian shirt. There was not one, but still lots of things. And in those tents, I saw, well, I saw my alternate self, Robin. I, I looked through the sliding doors past Gwyneth Paltrow and I saw a fellow named Dave Spinks and he had his own tent and his lovely wife, and it was Dave Spinks' Paranormal Investigator. And he had like four books that he'd written, and he'd been on a bunch of ghost shows and UFO shows. Did you
0: flip him over and see how uh, small the margins were?
1: I, I looked at the books. They are they were the kind of books that a paranormal investigator would write. Um, there was another paranormal uh, author named George Dudding, who had a gigantic collection. He had a lot of slim volumes. Uh, I, I picked up many of them about other aspects of weird West Virginia. So I picked up a slim volume called Sis Lynn Ghost of Glenville State College on the theory that this is a murdered lady who became a ghost. So it would be an ideal gift for Sheila and myself. Um, I also got his uh, book Mothman Country, which was sort of a big or Mothman Territory, excuse me, sort of a big compendium of moth energy. And then there was also Robin, a... Art collective, book design collective, I'm not even sure what called Bally Raven, and they had a gigantic compendium called In the Land of Catawampus, which is all about cryptids and folk monsters and ghosts. And all the things that they see in West Virginia. And there was a second version of it that was all statted up for Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. <laughs> and so, uh, I got the regular book and Darcy got the Dungeons and Dragons version of that book. And that was, there was a big nerd energy at the Mothman Fest. It was, uh, I mean there's also lots of unnerdy locals who just wanted to come to the fair and they were great, but you could have built a game convention out of that crowd of people definitely it was it was a, a fine thing the mothman museum i picked up the sort of um book of the documents in the mothman museum it's not the there was like two versions of it this one had a lot of interviews and eyewitness, eyewitness testimony it's called mothman behind the red eyes the complete investigative library by jeff walmsley jeff walmsley is the sort of um impresario behind the mothman fair the local lord of lore and uh he's started the event basically to cash in on the movie in 2002 or 2003. And it has been going from strength to strength to strength ever since.
0: So the lesson is go to the uh, Mothman Festival, but uh, do it on Sunday.
1: Yeah, that was absolutely the lesson. Our, our first lesson on Saturday, as Darcy and I were talking, I said, I think our lesson for the show will be go to Point Pleasant, just not during Mothman days. <laughs> it's a lovely little town. There's lots of fun to be had there, but maybe go in March. I've heard it's pleasant. (laughs) It is pleasant. It's a pleasant point.
0: And on that note, let us run to the next thing.
1: The Best of Ask the is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Hite. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash also find DICE, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory.
0: And Freeway Warrior, the series of
1: post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English, that's Swedish, not English, you can delight in every original issue of Phoenix,
0: and the new Sagebrush and Six-Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say
1: slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, Oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of AskFegeln on Drive Through. Help us keep bribing the absent fairy by leaguing with such beloved Patreon backers as Ian Nystrom, Joshua Randall, Yuri Horneman, Kelly Fisher, and Farron Bratz. The chuttering of the IBM Selectric typewriter, the gurgling of mid-priced bourbon into the jelly jar, the ignoring of the deadline looming on the calendar, welcome us into the hut where Robin and I, but mostly Robin, explain how to write good. Uh, we have not yet explained how to throw this segment good, but that's <laughs> another segment. It's to throw it. It's a different <laughs> still, segment. And like a writer, you're still struggling with the rewrite. I'm still messing with it. Uh, and Robin, in this episode, in this instance of this Hutley Hut, You are going to be talking, I think we'll be talking, but mostly you, about calibrating character complexity to the story you're telling, or does Conan the Barbarian need an inner life?
0: Right. So that brings us, let's start with the thing I always say, so Mm -hmm. I often reiterate uh, the difference between the dramatic character who undergoes a transformation and typically has uh, two poles that they're torn between, and the iconic hero who... Uh, is sort of a simple unipolar character, uh, and the world becomes complex, it becomes chaotic, and that character, in a serial fashion generally, rectifies the chaos of the world uh, over and over, and restores order, and solves a mystery, or beats up a wizard in a tower. Mm -hmm. The reason we don't perceive that latter uh, sort of character, and you often will uh, get writing advice that's uh, designed for different kind of character entirely, is because basically all writing advice evolves out of literary fiction and from the first writing workshops are all about writing uh, literary fiction. And there certainly are genre workshops now, but many of the sort of ideas about that first developed there have not been reexamined for different sorts of stories. And in fact, you will often hear as a complaint about a film, which is that these characters were one note characters. They weren't that complicated. However, You may be able to think of other stories in other mediums, and not just about Batman or Conan, where the characters are, in fact, very simple. They don't even have the dramatic poles that i characterize as being part of a dramatic character. But they're one simple thing. And that is because, uh, in fact, different sorts of stories need characters of different complexity. So the psychological novel, you know, the realistic literary fiction as we have known it for about 100 years, absolutely needs complex, nuanced characters who have as many levels to them as actual people. Because, of course, the whole point of that genre is mimetic and is trying to explore the human experience by revealing the depths of of characters. And so having a one-note character in that is actually bad. Uh, But there are plenty of other circumstances where having less complicated characters is in fact the correct creative decision. You will often hear people say, uh, because people want to be able to describe why they don't like things and will pick up sort of a superficial level of critique, uh, you will often hear people say that I didn't like that story. The characters were one note. Uh, Someone said that once about a novel that I wrote, but said, but this one character was the best character. I really liked that character. And they named the character that was the absolute one-note cartoon character mm-hmm. <laughs> in a cast of people who were actually complicated and had more levels than you would normally see in that genre. So a lot of times, first of all, when you hear people say these characters were not complicated enough, it's shorthand for I didn't like it. And I'm coming up with a intellectual reason for explaining why I didn't like it. But if there's a simple character that you really identify with and relate to, they will seem very deep Because they take on the depth that you apply to this.
1: And this leads to sort of the flip side of that, which is people who enjoy, and uh, those people absolutely include me, your Batman, your Conan, your Jack Reacher, your Sherlock Holmes, your people like that, will defend those characters and say, no, they're very deep, they're very important, they're very layered. Why over, you know, 25,000 comic book appearances, look at all the levels of Batman. And that might even be true. Let's let the argument pass and say that it's true. But in any given Batman appearance, it doesn't appear. You're drawing in outside Batman thought. And I feel like with another character, you're also often drawing in your outside thought of either you're personally identifying with them. And so you're adding your own complexity to the relatively brute character on stage or on the page, or you are saying, well, good important novels have complex characters. I want people to think, I'm reading a good, important novel. Therefore, I'm going to say that Paul Atreides is a complex character as opposed to a simple character to whom a lot of stuff happens. Right.
0: Because the reality is is that the level of meaning in a story can rest in different places. Yeah. In the psychological, realistic novel, it rests in the words and thoughts uh, and then very secondarily the actions of the characters, uh, so it's in the internal monologue it's in the way that the people in conflict talk to each other, but in other very serious works that are masterpieces, the meaning is in the action it's what the characters are doing so uh, Battle of Algiers, for example, uh, one of the you know profound masterpieces of cinema, there aren't deeply complicated people in that; they all mirror different political archetypes Athena which is now on Netflix and may well be my favorite film of the year, spoiler alert, has three main characters, all of which who embody one thing. And that's because you don't want or need them to be more complicated because that story is all about the action and the movement and about what is happening and the sense of chaos in a story about a housing project under siege after a a rebellion due to a police brutality incident. And the meaning is in the movement and in the way those characters clash. And if they were more complicated, if they had a different side to them, and I don't want to, there's an asterisk there, which I'm not going to give away because it's a spoiler, um, that would slow down the action, which is the whole point of it. And likewise, with opera, there are some operas, that have complex psychological characters, but the meaning and complexity of opera belongs in the music itself, not in the characterization. And so you don't want uh, characters that are, you know, stopping to have other side conflicts or, or describe their nuances because the nuances is in the music. So, so the part of this, that's actually a writing tip is (laughs) know where the level of meaning in your story is and pitch the complexity of the characters appropriately because if it's the rest in the action, you don't want to stop the action by having soliloquies and monologues. On the other hand, if you're doing a character comedy and the characters are not strong enough for us to laugh at what they do and recognize the humanity in them, but they're just simple stock types, but the comedy doesn't arise from the collision of types, you have failed to create an adequate level of characterization of recognizability uh, in order to spawn the laughs that you're looking for. So you can have uh, a relatively lighthearted thing, like a comedy, that requires more complex characterization, and you can have very serious works that that don't.
1: I would would say, to leave the question of medium aside, because then that opens up a whole box and I think we're probably not writing operas. Most of us, um, I would say that you can even gauge the complexity of the character more narrowly than, you know, than that. Uh, I will take three absolute peak masterpieces, all comedies, lucky Jim, right? Deep character interiority. It's all about recognition of this human being who's put through all this and has to deal with all this nonsense at this college, pride and prejudice, Lizzie Bennet, one of the best characters ever created, but I would argue not particularly complex or even deep. What she is is thoroughly human, but at no point does she really change who she is as a person, even though she undergoes the story arc that the story is about. She overcomes her pride or her prejudice, whichever it is, and uh, marries Darcy, but at no point. Is there like a, a Jamesian study of her psychology that just doesn't happen anywhere in that possibly best novel in English? Right, and then because the meaning is in the interactions of of right. familiar types, and any of your Jeeves and Wooster stories where Bertie Wooster is literally the, the the thinnest scum of cream on Lizzie Bennett's tea as a human. But is endlessly fascinating because of his rubber-headed nonsense that he always goes through. And all of those are masterpieces. They're all comic masterpieces. So you can't even get away with serious things need deep characters. It's that the need of the story in each case is different and the type of the story in each case is different. The, the, the comedy. In Lucky Jim is a lot of psychological recognition. And the comedy in Austin is the comedy of manners, literally the interplay of characters off of each other. And the comedy in Woodhouse is almost slapstick. But all of them, at no point do you feel like Bertie Wooster is a bad character or a failed character or quote unquote too thin because he's perfect. He's yes. perfect for what the story is,
0: right? And he's not iconically solving mysteries. <laughs> no. uh, he's maybe iconically causing a problem that Jeeves needs to resolve. That's Jeeves's job is yeah. to
1: iconically solve things. <laughs> Bertie's job is to iconically mess things up.
0: And so, I guess the the, the main takeaway then for uh, writers is again to know how much complexity you require to tell the sort of story uh, within whatever—not just medium, but also uh, genre—and also style within that genre of you know what tone your story requires and for non-practitioners instead of just saying i didn't like that the characters were thin you can say <laughs> i don't like that the character complexity did not match the story being told and on that note it's time for us to tell yet another story i think about someone with a big old wig let's let's tell a wig story wig segment Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too
1: real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality.
0: From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration.
1: ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts.
0: A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary
1: material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom de- new rituals, new tomes, and the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF or in glistening hardback.
0: It's time once again to weave our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing. We're going to wave... To the uh, delightful, friendly fire salamander, who's there in a portrait in the wall, and he's going to wave back because he's a magical fire salamander. As uh, actually, I don't think there are none. We digress. We're yeah. heading on. So Father waits portrait. for us. The <laughs> consulting occultist. He's gone on his, his smoking jacket. But the smoking jacket is a little modern for the subject he's going to be addressing this time. Because beloved patron backer Louis Sylvester says, "I just finished reading Ken's tour to Lovecraft books. Realized that I didn't know anything about Cotton Mather." What's his deal? Why is he so important to American history, to Lovecraft, to the mythos? Ken, I guess this is a case of someone, he was a an anti-occultist, yeah. but definitely a believer in the supernatural and someone who took that belief and turned it into some great real world harm.
1: I feel like you can definitely... Think of Cotton Mather as an occultist in that he studied the occult world, the hidden world. He wrote two very big books about it, in fact. I would
0: take umbrage if you said that, though.
1: But he would say what he was was a student of God's creation in all of its forms. And and that's what he was. He was actually, if you want to put a thing down besides preacher, which, of course, was his main day job, he was actually a scientist. He was a member of the Royal Society, elected in 1713. He was a passionate supporter of smallpox inoculation. This is back in 1716. This is before Edward Jenner, and very much endangered his standing in society, and indeed his life, in that someone threw a grenade into his house during the smallpox epidemic in 1721, as he was constantly bullying people to go get inoculated. And uh, there was a big whoop de doo about that. He wrote the first science compendium in America, a book called The Christian Philosopher, which presented Newtonian principles as the principles of creation revealed to Newton by God. He was a big fan of heliocentrism. He liked experiments. He did hybridization of corn, basically reasoned his way into genetic theory without ever seeing a gene. So he was sort of Mendel avant la lettre, said, oh, if you have scurvy, drink lime juice. What's wrong with you, you idiots? Which is a thing the British Navy forgot for a hundred years, so good for you. Fundamentally, he believed that God made the world, made our reasoning capacity, told us to figure it out. So in 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 many ways, speaking of things he would have yelled at you about, he was sort of an Aquinian figure, Thomas Aquinas type. But anyway, what he was also was the son of Increase Mather, who was the Either the first or second most important man in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was the minister of Boston's second church. John Winthrop was the minister of the first church. So you can see the level we're working at here. Born in 1663, he becomes the youngest person ever admitted to Harvard briefly thinks about not going into divinity and becoming a doctor is talked out of that one assumes by his dad he's ordained in 1685 and becomes co-pastor with his father at the second church until his father finally dies in 1723 so most of his life is spent to some extent trying to establish his own personal identity as opposed to that of oh that's Increase mather's kid and that's very hard if your dad is Increase mather in 1689 he's a political activist against governor andros Nearly gets arrested, but fortunately the new dispensation comes through under William and Mary, and he's not, so good for him. He's twice widowed, he has 15 children, only two of whom survive him, and that, is a detail that I picked out of uh, Kenneth Silverman's excellent book, The Life and Times of Cotton Mather, because like everyone, I think I had the same sort of, oh, he's the guy in the wig who, you know, hung witches, boo, both those things. But Silverman's book, while not necessarily defending the witch hanging, very much paints a picture of Cotton Mather as a human being, a guy who goes through a lot of trauma in his life, and who according to his own diaries and to some extent to his own sermons feels very real religious doubt. I mean, you can be as Calvinist as you want, but when it's your kids dying in the measles epidemic, that's a facer that really hurts. And that sort of level of personal agony and pain and doubt that he must therefore be even sciencier about to fix. There's an interesting engine in his psychology. But the reason we're all talking about Cotton Mather on this show is that in 1688, he inserts himself into the Boston witchcraft trial of Goody Glover. Uh, She is the last person hanged in Boston for witchcraft. He observes the stricken Goodwin children, even adopts one briefly, and writes a book about their experiences called Memorable Providences in 1689, where he says, yep, it was witchcraft. Goody Glover got what was coming to her. And so, therefore, when the witch problems begin in Salem Village, which... Even at the time, people were saying, I wonder how many people read memorable providences before accusing people of witchcraft in Salem, question mark. He is asked to write up a theological-slash-legal brief for the court of Oyer and Terminer that is going to investigate these witch situations, and the trouble with his legal brief is, first of all, it begins from the position, yes, there are witches, the Bible says there are witches, what is wrong with you? But also, even worse than that, he comes around to saying spectral evidence, which is to say evidence of invisible things that people saw should be counted in court.
0: Right. Which is testimony yeah. of potentially made-up perceptions that is untestable.
1: Right. And uh, you can't cross-examine a specter, for example. So, it's fundamentally... Well, you can do it all day, but he won't answer. Right. It's fundamentally unjust.
0: You, you can question a specter, but you can't do is process serve him.
1: Right. You can do a lot of things with specters, but a lot of things that are not concomitant with Anglo-American juridical tradition. He does say, don't make it the only thing. You shouldn't convict someone solely on the basis of spectral evidence. So he says, do not lay more stress on pure spectral evidence than it will bear. It is very certain that the devils have sometimes represented the shapes of persons not only innocent, but also virtuous. Yeah. But if you need to tip the scale, but you know, it's, it's the old. You know, we found this in an illegal search, but it's a smoking gun and maybe we're going to allow it. The sort of, you know, legal chicanery that is sadly not yet dead. He defended his actions, which Governor Phipps eventually, uh, right around the time people said, I saw the governor's wife and she was dancing with the devil and I was told so by a spectral witch. And Governor Phipps said, we're not allowing spectral evidence anymore. Shut it down. Shut it all down. So he defends his action in a book called Wonders of the Invisible World, which is another gigantic bestseller. And it sort of sets out the prosecution case for the Salem witch trials. By 1702, when he writes his big compendium of uh, the miraculous and sacred history of America called Magnalia Christi Americana, or basically Wonders of Christ in America, he Begins to sort of distance himself from the trial. He says, well, that was a bunch of other guys. I was there at like one execution and I said, oh, well, that was probably a witch. And he sort of backs off spectral evidence. So the genuine repentance of the Salem fathers, the letters of apology signed by all the judges at the court of Oyer and Terminer, the sackcloth and ashes that they'd all piled on themselves after the sort of madness broke, and Governor Phipps said, we're not going to hear ghost testimony anymore. That probably had a definite effect on him, and it absolutely had a political effect on him, because all of a sudden, he was a shoe in to be the president of Harvard after his dad left the job, but Harvard got a little uppity and said, maybe we don't want spectral evidence guy running Harvard. And right, so,
0: in, in fictional portrayals of this and other witch trials, it is often boiled down to society has gone completely fanatical and this is the prevailing view and everybody thought that way Mm -hmm. and it was only you know in centuries later in the light of true understanding that we know that these people were impossibly backwards and horrible and therefore we're using them as a metaphor for a contemporary act of political hysteria but in this and also in many other witch trial situations in scotland and uh, throughout europe and elsewhere at the time there are always plenty of people going wait a minute, this is a travesty, or hold on, you can't, even if ghosts are real, if they're unprovable, you can't get their testimony. What are you talking about? Right? There's This was always, or quite frequently, a contentious matter at the time, and not yeah. everybody was a credulous rube.
1: And again, given that Mather was very important politically, the Mather family was, his dad was, he had political enemies, right. who and even he, if they believed... he was a believed...
0: big-time firebrand, he was a, a Puritan hardliner, right. he was making... Massachusetts godly again.
1: Mm-hmm. Endless Jeremiah adds about how, you know, you, you deserve all the problems you have because of your falling away from the true faith. And the political opposition to Mather, even if they also agreed there are witches, they still went out of their way to say, well, there may be witches, but this case is badly tried. You messed it up, Cotton Mather. You, you, you. And so even though Mather didn't really have a lot to do with the actual matter of the trials, it became politically expedient for his enemies to hang them around his neck, as it were. Right.
0: And as you pointed out, he arguably laid the framework, the imaginative framework, for the accusations in the first place.
1: Yeah. I mean, he certainly pumped it up. The The, the framework existed well before Cotton Mather, as you said. We'd been having witchcraft trials in New England for some time, and in the West generally for 150 years by that point. But he definitely made it a local thing, and very possibly contributed to the sort of atmosphere of, oh, I don't like goody, you know, Burroughs. I'm going to accuse her of being a witch that led in many, many cases to Salem. So he's definitely not, you know, Snow White, in an innocent man wronged. Um, For a long time, scholarship, as they discovered how great he was in every other respect, scientifically, morally, etc., they would say, well, he's an intellectual he can't have believed in witches, and they would try and sort of weasel out of his own words, and uh sadly, the history of intellectuals is that they will believe in dumb things almost faster than anyone else, so good luck with that. But Cotton Mather, while a complex figure, still probably earns some of the mean portraits that Lovecraft paints of him in his fiction, to answer the last right.
0: bit. And I guess we should also point out that he was a practitioner of the then accepted widespread crime of owning people and extracting labor from them.
1: Right. Yeah, he had uh, three slaves over the course of his life. Slavery was not yet illegal in Massachusetts. He, you know, believed that all slaves should be raised Christian. They should be converted. They should be treated as you would treat a Christian servant in your house.
0: He had some sympathy for a slave revolt.
1: Yes. He he wrote a, a thing that said, well, if they revolted, was it you? Did you do a thing? Were you mean to them? Maybe that, maybe you had it coming in the sort of, you had it coming attitude that he had about most that things. That was his
0: main. Slogan, that, was, that was his vibe. More popular in that day than, than it would yeah. be now.
1: And in fact, the slave who is reported to have told him about inoculation as a thing that was done in Africa and got him interested in it. That slave refused to convert to Christianity, said, I've seen how that's working out for you guys. No, thank you. And when he refused to convert to Christianity, Mather said, well, if I can't raise you as a Christian, I shouldn't be owning you and manumitted him, which I assume the other two slaves were like, damn it. But uh, so, again, a more complex figure while still, yes, owning slaves. Right. So, the Lovecraft bit. The Lovecraft bit. Lovecraft owned a, I forget if it's a first or second edition, a very early edition of Magnalia Christi Americana, and he read it obsessively. He loved it, and he loved the weird creepiness, he loved the old-timey language, he loved everything about it, except that it was written by a guy who really believed in God, which Lovecraft absolutely did not. So, he's got this very complex love-hate relationship with the Puritans. And you see, over the course of his letters, he'll say, you know what? You know, give the Puritans credit. They were artists. They were dark, horrible artists, but they were artists nonetheless. And by the end of his life, he says, you know what? The Puritans were right. Everything is going to hell. This is not wrong. I've given them a bad rap. But in the fiction, they are always the sort of the bad old 17th century before the light of 18th century reason reaches New England. And they are where darkness festers because they did everything in secret. The secrets got worse. And he literally says that in, um, I believe in picture in the house and he, he puts a copy of Magnalia Christian Americana in the house of the cannibal to illustrate the kind of mindset that the guy's in the beast in the unnameable. He actually takes from a bit in uh, Mather's MCA and Magnalia uh, from book six, the book six, which no one should read after dark, as he says. And uh Mather is talking about a guy who had sex with an animal. And uh when an animal was born with a weird uh, blemish in its eye, they said, that looks just like old George's eye. Hey, <laughs> and then they hung him for it. Lovecraft, of course, turns it into a ghost monster that lives in the window because he's Lovecraft. He is the foil for Pikmin in Pikmin's model. Pikmin is all like, I'll do things Mather doesn't do. I'll show you things Mather was scared to see. And, of course, uh, what Pikmin is doing is trafficking literally with underground powers. So, Mather is sort of the good guy structurally in Pikmin. In Charles Dexter Ward, Lovecraft actually got the quote that he ascribes to Borellis from a Mather summary And then he cites uh, the Magnalia Christi Americana again in Charles Dexter Ward. And finally, uh, Mather gets a brief walk-on in Dreams in the Witch House when Kaziah Mason escapes from Salem jail into hyperspace. Uh, Lovecraft says, not even Cotton Mather can explain the curves drawn on the wall of her cell. And not even Cotton Mather, the smartest guy in America, can't figure it out. And that is Mather in uh, Lovecraft. And to Lovecraft, Mather represents this sort of you know, literally, the ancestor you don't talk about, right? He recognizes in himself a lot of Cotton Mather, I would assume, and doesn't want to admit it. And in, in a way, that's a very Lovecraftian attitude to have towards your spiritual ancestor, I suppose. Within the mythos, the job of being a preacher who smites a mythos has been given to other figures. Uh, there's Reverend Ward Phillips, there's Abijah Hoadley, there's other people. Lovecraft never makes Mather, you know, out there smacking Yogg-Sothoth the around, A, right, because, because it, he's
0: not writing in that period.
1: And B, because he doesn't want to give Mather the credit, right? He he would rather die than, than admit that Mather had a point. But the importance to the mythos is Mather as symbol of the repression under which the witch cult burbles away. And again, Lovecraft wants to have it both ways. He wants Mather to be a uniquely repressive, terrifying figure, but he also wants the witch cult to have been real and worshiping near Lathotep. And I feel like, you know, you've got to, at some point, those, those cars have got to cross and you've got to figure out which one gets hit.
0: Well, Even if you're arresting people who are in league with Narrathotep, you have to prove it,
1: right? You can't use spectral evidence to convict. Yeah. Them. You just blow up their house at night when no one can stop you. That's, that's what we've learned in gaming about how justice works. Yes.
0: Well, don't, don't do what the player characters would do in any yeah. justice system. That's, that's
1: just generally good advice. Point
0: number one. Right. And at your gaming table, uh, Mather can be someone you cite as an early source uh, that undoubtedly he wrote about whatever weird monster you just made up that week and has some clues about it. And, uh, how else do we uh, bring him into play?
1: I mean, certainly if you're playing a, any kind of occult game, horror game set in New England, you know, dive through the Magnalia Christi Americana. It's obviously, it's free, it's online, it's searchable, or you find a good edition with an index. Find something creepy. You get an actual Mather quote. I mean, it worked for Lovecraft literally twice, so surely it can work for you a couple of times. You can also present Mather as the head of a secret tradition, because he was a scientist who knew things, and... If witches are actually near Athotep or they're actually Carcosa or they're something else, Mather was clued in and he, you know, his, his son, uh, Increase Jr., you know, picked it up or he laid down an, an old tradition of secret Puritans that go around burning up, uh, monsters and they're after you because now you're full of occult weirdness or you bring them in and then realize, oh, these guys do not mess around. Maybe I would not like to be on their team. Or maybe you would like to be on their team. Maybe you'd like to join them and burn out monsters so he can be sort of a secret progenitor either of you or of the dark shadow of you in the way that he is for Lovecraft.
0: Well, on that note, I think uh, we can uh, call it a day we can go, uh, and go uh, and take our uh, Mothman burgers that we took back from the fair and uh, heat them up and enjoy them and then uh, uh, steal ourselves for yet another episode yet another week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Palgrain Press, Asphagelm, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and, and Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com
0: backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast from being smothered in moth dust by joining such splendid backers as Trung Boy, Craig Maloney, Alexander Arabalo, Jane McDowell, and Robert Wolf. Wear this show or drink it from a mother with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Check out our latest mythos rabbit design, Bunwich Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D.
0: Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.